I just don't know that I belong. I'm politically homeless. How did the liberal side of the aisle become illiberal? There is no forgiveness. There is no way for you to redeem yourself if, by its own definitions, you have sinned. Today I sit down with Liel Leibovitz, a senior writer for Tablet Magazine and host of the Unorthodox podcast. We discuss the new illiberal reality we face, the growing atomization of the individual, and how society can rebuild from the bottom up. It turns out that we're still fighting the Cold War, and it turns out that the communists are winning. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Liel Leibovitz, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Liel, I have to say this. I, you wrote one of my favorite essays of 2021. And I've had a few, I have a few favorite essays from that time. The Turn. When I saw the left gave up on everything I believed in, I changed politically. You can too. And when I started reading that essay, I recognized something that I had experienced some years prior. And uh, you know, as you go on to develop in the essay, you, you note, note that a lot of people are experiencing this sort of thing. But what is the turn? Tell me about the turn and how you, frankly, came up with the idea of the turn. The turn is the moment uh, when you kind of begin to understand, a, a little bit like that movie, The Matrix, that everything you assumed was the very fabric of reality. It's not just politics, it's the entirety of existence. Uh, may be called into question. I grew up, like so many people, with this idea that uh, if you were a good, decent human being, uh, you were, of course, on the left, because the left was a side that cared about human rights, women's rights, gay rights. The left was the side that wanted to give peace a chance. And on the right, there were, at best, uh, people who only cared about money, uh, and at worst, people who held ideas that were sort of benighted and scary. And so it seemed obvious to me that all the good people and all the good causes were somewhere uh, from, from, from center to, to you know, fairly far left. And I never once doubted that question. I didn't doubt it, uh, or that premise. I didn't doubt it when I went to graduate school. I didn't doubt it uh, when I started sort of forging out a career in, in writing journalism academia. Uh, but then slowly, slowly, I, I began to notice those little glitches. I began to notice that there were things that you simply weren't allowed to say, that the notion of free and fettered thought or inquiry wasn't exactly right, uh, that there were premises that were just sort of a little bit askew, like the notion that, well, it was fine to criticize some people uh, for, for saying objectionable things, but others were somehow uh, beyond reproach. Uh, and, and once this framework starts to unravel, uh, once you start asking yourself, wait a minute, what is it that you guys actually believe? What can I and can I not say? Uh, and look at, at what has actually become of so much of contemporary American sort of establishment, democratic, left of center politics, uh, you figure out that none of it is true. You figure out that the party that uh, hails itself for being the party of the working class, supports this major, major oligopoly of corporations uh, without any interest to the actual lived realities of Americans. You realize that the party of science uh, is there to use its media organs uh, to quash any real inquiry in, into scientific issues and, and, and have the sort of open-minded discussions that are at the heart of, of what a scientific inquiry must be. Uh, and, and once you discover that, uh, you begin to, well, take the turn. But this isn't all about party politics. I mean, I, certainly, actually, that's what you talk about in, in, in your essay. This, there's something kind of much deeper at play here. Certainly. Uh, it, it's, about, it's about a way of being in the world. Uh, the assumption for so long for people like me uh, has been that, you know, we... Uh, the few and the fortunate belonged uh, to, this, to this group of people who went to fine schools, uh, who were informed by the finest uh, intellectual publications, uh, who had a strong grasp, an idea of what the world was, was actually like. To understand uh, that these institutions have been so deeply corrupted 
by people who pursue this kind of weird ideological, um, this weird ideological zeal, this weird commitment to, to seeing the world in ways that are increasingly demonstrably empirically false. People who could tell you, for example, uh, that, there, uh, that the notion that there are only two genders, uh, which is a notion that is confirmed by literally the biological makeup of every cell in your body, uh, is not only dangerous but now wrong. Uh, when you start seeing that happen uh, at, at institutions of higher learning, media, etc., you're right, it's not just about partisan politics, it's about a way of being in the world, it's about the way of thinking uh, about yourself and about your group of, of peers, and I've I'd always been throughout my life um, ecstatic uh, to be part of the quote-unquote in-group. Uh, you know, I worked, I arrived at this country as an immigrant from Israel, the day I arrived, actually I arrived on a Thursday, on Friday, the day after I arrived, I went to Columbia University, I took the subway, and stood outside and gazed at this marvelous edifice of human you know, erudition, and said to myself, it's going to be all right, here's my plan. Uh, I am going to go here, I'm going to get a PhD here, I'm going to become a professor, I'm going to write books, and I'm going to make it in America, which is exactly the same corny yet beautiful yet true idea that generations of immigrants before me had. And then something terrible happened. It all worked out. I, I got in, I got that PhD, I became a professor, I started writing books, I started writing for smart little publications, I had these fabulous dinners where you sit next to Salman Rushdie or you know, Susan Sontag or people you'd admired your entire life. Uh, and it meant so much to me, the approval of, of, of this crowd, right, of this group, um, which is why noticing uh, the, the fissures, which is why noticing the break uh, was so painful because what I was leaving behind wasn't just some kind of you know, mechanical commitment to an ideological structure. It was my friends who had now rejected me because I wasn't allowed, because uh, I wasn't willing rather to say, oh yes, no, I believe everything that you say unquestioningly. That was the, the real break and that's the real break I think a lot of people are feeling. It's a break of breaking apart from family and friends and loved ones and, and feeling judged. This notion that you have that you sit at the dinner party and feel for example that you can't say that maybe burning stores and looting isn't the best way to demonstrate for social justice. The fact that so many of us cannot sit in dinner parties in New York, LA, Chicago, Boston, and say this very simple and completely non-controversial sentence, that means a lot. It means that society itself has become imbued with some illiberal, intolerant essence that, uh, that people feel is just creepy. Well, okay, that's really interesting because you use the word illiberal here. What happened to the left, I guess, is that's the question, right? Because part of the left wa was liberal in the past. What are your thoughts? I, I think the answer to that uh, will be the subject of the great scholarship of, of the next 100 or so years. I think we'd always had a sort of balance uh, in the age known as the Enlightenment uh, between those fractions uh, of, or those factions of society that uh, saw humanity as basically a collection of atomized individuals who got together as free and untethered people and negotiated social contracts that gave away some liberties in return for some securities. Uh, and others who saw humanity as a collection of groups, of communities, of families, of tribes, of religious of faith uh, structures. Uh, and I think the tension between them uh, and the collaborations between them gave us everything that was truly great about the last 350 years. Gave us progress, but also gave us faith. Gave us art, but also gave us science. I think once you started uh, declaring war uh, on the church, on the family, on more traditional ways of being in the world. Uh, once you started discounting that, once you developed news media or, or, or te technological devices that uh, were predicated on the atomization of the individual, that benefited from you being alone, looking at your screen by yourself, 
clicking a button. Once that started happening, once the traditional framework, the glue that kept us together, started disbanding, then I think this whole notion of what it means to be liberal went through the door because it just eroded into a pursuit of power. It just eroded into a desire to be in control. And also was fueled by this notion that, oh, we know better than these people. I have a PhD, sir, from Columbia University. Let me tell you what you should do with your body. Th that people on the so-called left think this way, that they call themselves leftists despite supporting what is increasingly some kind of, of authoritarian state control, unfree media, unfree public health, etc., etc., uh, is really, really alarming, and it means that the shift that is upon us right now is more than just po political. It, it is existential. It is, it is, you know, monumental, and it's really interesting to behold. Well, okay, so I have so many questions I want to throw out. I mean, part of it was, I think you, you, your professorship, that was actually, it was related to video games. I know that. Yes, so I knew was. you have a particularly interesting perspective on this atomization through devices, and I want to, I want to talk about that for sure. But the other question is, as you started talking about rejection of tradition, I can't help thinking of the Communist Manifesto. Mm -hmm. Because that's really, I mean, everything you described, that destruction is, One isn't that what it is? hundred percent. It turns out that we're still fighting the Cold War. And it turns out that the communists are winning. And that's the, the terrifying part. You could see so many elements of it. I mean, it's obviously more complicated than that. But that is one of the things that we reject with such vehemence because you really needn't be a very ardent uh, and even profound student of communism to know that the destruction of both the church and the traditional nuclear family were goals one and two, respectively, of any communist, self-respecting communist regime because that's where the real source of resistance uh, to, to the sort of authoritarian uh, dominance comes from. Uh, and that it is now part and parcel of this, not just political organizations, but, but social movements uh, that try to tell you that the family is inherently uh, patriarchal and bad and oppressive and, and bad for your rights and you should really kind of rethink this whole structure. Uh, to me, that's deeply worrisome. Uh, because then at this point you're not just uh, coming up with an alternate, uh, alternative political uh, solution. You're coming up with a worldview that is, that is decidedly uh, anti-American, that is decidedly uh, anti-freedom, uh, and in my opinion decidedly anti-human, which is precisely what communism always been. Well, okay, so let's talk about anti-human and let's talk about, you know, the second thing I wanted to talk about is, which is the I guess I get you call it the atomization of people into their devices. I don't know if that's if that's what you were thinking, but that's what I heard. Yeah, it worries me. I have two children. Uh, they're ten and eight. I struggle mightily, and, and I I fail uh, miserably at keeping them away from these maniacal devices uh, that are designed to steal away their attention. Um, they are designed to bombard their actual, having been a, a student of, of the actual neurochemistry of what happens to your brain when you interact with so many digital stimuli. Our brain is not built to receive such a torrent of stimuli so fast, so frequently. It literally changes the neural bypass, neurosynapses of our brain. Uh, and not in a good way, because it makes us addicted to these affirmations, to these attention, to these bleeps and bloops that the machine keeps producing. And younger people particularly are susceptible to it. Uh, not only is it changing their ability to interact with one another, it also makes the whole notion of human interaction radically different from what it always stood for, because rather than being in the same room, and, and being together and reading social cues and expressions. Right now it's, it's come down to pressing likes, swiping right or left or up and down, hearing dings, putting emojis in. Uh, it's a far more transactional, uh, shallow and flat way of being in the world and being with other people. And it's literally destroying our ability to, to relate to each other 
as real human beings, as, as, as subjects, as people with, with, with thoughts and, and feelings. Uh, and you see this uh, in the destruction of our ability to have a, a, a calm, sane talk about politics. You see this in our destruction uh, of our ability to disagree politely uh, with people who see the world a different way. So what? This is another thing that kind of really irritated me and shocked me uh, about my former friends on the left. Being a part of a movement that speaks so often and so loudly about acceptance and really accepting everyone and accepting difference, well, shouldn't that acceptance uh, also be granted to people who just don't think the same way you do? Hey, you like Joe Biden, they like Donald Trump, so what? We could still go out and have a beer together. We could still be friends. This insistence that everything be pure, uh, that is what you get when you spend your days sitting alone, looking at a screen, uh, in a digital echo chamber that amplifies the same voices again and again and again and again, shuts out any dissent, uh, puts you in a position to only see a very narrow sliver of ideas and start to believe that this indeed is the world. Some people say, hey, you know, it's just Twitter, it's just Facebook, it's just your phone. No, it's not anymore. That's how most people see, that's the window through which most people see humanity. And it's a very bad window. People would say, well, sure, but you know, how can you have polite conversations with Nazis? Would you have polite conversations with Nazis? That would be the response to your question. I've heard of that right. myself. The uh, reduction ad Hitlerium strategy of discussion. Everyone who doesn't agree with me is literally Hitler. Uh, if that is the, if that is the uh, operating assumption, uh, then you're already in trouble. Uh, if, if your algorithm, to keep on with a great digital metaphor that, that we're developing here, uh, is already predicated on finding these binaries, uh, then yeah, you can't have a conversation. But here's the thing, and I write this in the piece, only religious zealots, small children, and machines think in binaries. The rest of us think in, in, in shades of gray, in complications. Well, yes, obviously, if Heinrich Himmler was sitting in front of me with his full SS regalia saying, no, you don't understand. I literally am coming back from a concentration camp. I would say, sir, I have very little to say to you. Uh, if someone who doesn't support, say, public education sits across from me, well, no, I may disagree on a, on a key issue with that person, but it doesn't take much to see that that person has depth, has nuance. It's not just black and white. That's another risk, by the way, of, of this algorithm algorithmic form of thinking, it is very conducive to training you to think like a machine. Machines don't see the depth of human love. They don't see flaws. They don't see complications. They don't see nuance. They see A or B. They're actually way, way dumber than we think. We get so impressed with these gadgets, like, oh my God, look at what my phone could do. I could pay for parking and order a pizza and find a date for tonight all on my phone. It's a really dumb machine. It has A or B. The danger is that we're also becoming really dumb machines capable of thinking A and B. Democrat or Republican? Pro-Trump or never Trump? It's so stupid. That's not how humans were designed by, by, by the real creator, by the real intelligent design. I think that so many people are feeling what we're feeling right now. This notion of what the heck happened to America? What, what happened to our public discourse? What happened to our institutions? Why do I turn on TV right now and hear literal insane conspiracy theories repeated as if they're actual news, even after they're factually disproven? Why do I have to start going to all kinds of publications that I didn't even know about four, five, six years ago and all of a sudden understand that they're actually incredible because they actually have respect for my intelligence and for observable reality. Why are there things I can and cannot say in public? If you're asking yourself these questions, we don't all need to be in agreement about everything. But if, you're, if you get a sense that something is profoundly broken, make that, if you get a sense that everything is profoundly broken, uh, then you already belong to a great coalition uh, of Americans who are coming together and they are, talk about diversity, this is a truly diverse group of people who come from all walks of life. Some of them are considered right-wing, some of them are considered left-wing. The fact is that these terms don't even matter anymore. We're coming together because we want to reimagine America the way we believe it can be and should be.
Okay, that's very interesting because you, you you do mention that left and right don't really mean anything anymore. I agree. I mean, uh, in my own commentary about the turn, which I've shared with people, I've said that I when I read your piece, I said I definitely experienced the turn, but I didn't think in terms of left and right. I didn't see my I wasn't a political person. Right. I didn't put myself in these camps, but something happened nonetheless. <laughs> There's a lot of people out there, I think, who are experiencing the sort of thing that you just described, but really don't want to, you know, put their careers on a line, lose family members. And this is the thing, right? This is the thing that I find so bizarre, right? And is that, I mean, whatever it is, this thing that's gripping people to the point where they can, you know, disown their own family members, it's, it's that powerful. Right? It's, 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 it's bizarre. Have you, have you ever thought about that? I'm heartbroken by it. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me tell you a personal anecdote of, of how it sort of came to me. So the turn, uh, as it happens, doesn't happen overnight. Uh, there's no one big cinematic moment. There's no you know, explosion. I'm, I'm not running into the distance as I finally realize that everything is a lie. In, in this sense, the Matrix is, you know, a bad metaphor because there's no point in which uh, Mobius comes to you and says, well, you could either choose the truth or go back to your blissful ignorance. Um, it's a series of, of small vibrations. It's a series of small, huh, type of moments. Oh, I, you know, raised a point and a meaning today and people looked at me kind of funny and then someone said, you shouldn't, you shouldn't say that. Uh, why? I don't understand. You know, it's a, it's a series of, of really, of puzzlements. Um, and I, I had a bunch of those. And then one day I went to have lunch with uh, a gentleman who had been a tremendous source of comfort to me. He was my dear friend and my mentor uh, in the university where I, where I studied. Uh, someone who I considered a very good personal close friend, someone who's been over to my house for dinner many times and I've gone over to his. And one day he asked me out to, uh, I think it was a lunch or a dinner, and told me that a bunch of comments I was making about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, a subject which I knew a great deal about, were no longer acceptable to a large number of our colleagues on the faculty. Two things struck me about that, say, about that statement. The first thing that struck me is how perfectly Soviet it was. Uh, you know, watch out, comrade. There is talk in the party that you are expressing wrong thing. This is not good. Uh, it, it was just so strange coming from a person who represents an institution that to me is the bedrock of the free and unfettered exchange of ideas which I committed my entire life to. But the thing that hurt me much more was how empty of love his voice was. It wasn't compassion. It wasn't, hey, I just want what's best for you. I'm trying to guide you through this. L let's work this out together. It was this cold, authoritative, empty voice that said, straighten up or else. And I walked home that day thinking, you know what? I don't even care about the issues. I never want to be a part of, of any group, of any collection of people in which someone, in which a political disagreement could empty your heart of love, of empathy, of care at a drop of a pin, in which you could decide that you no longer wish to fraternize with this person or that person because they no longer support the correct policies or, or ideas. If you don't have that basic human empathy, this connection to a person because he's a person, because you love them, because you feel connected to them. And if you're no longer able to use that love and empathy to strike a real dialogue, a real emotional exchange of not just ideas but feelings between people, then I don't want to be a part of this camp. And I found out that a lot of uh, what I thought of as the beautiful, compassionate, you know, open-hearted left had absolutely no feeling. And when you start feeling like this, then you realize that the thing that you're seeking isn't just 
a different political party. Oh, I used to be a Democrat, now I'm a Republican. It's not just you know, a different uh, group of friends. What you're feeling or what you're looking for is, is human connection. You're looking for people who are willing to say with you, hey man, you know, maybe you care about this, maybe I care about this, but like, here's what we care about way more than anything else. We care about being together. We care about being civil to one another. We care about staying human, uh, not insulting each other online, not having litmus tests for who can and cannot be our friends. We care about staying human to each other. Uh, and, and once you see this, you understand how many more people are in your new camp than used to be in your old, stuffy, airless one. Well, just it strikes me that there must be, there must be a lot of Democrats, you know, for lack of a better term, that feel like you do, right? It's not just... Oh, I, I'm convinced of it. I, I, get, I, I get notes and, and emails from people all the time that say, well, you know, I started feeling that there was something weird in the Democratic Party. Or for that matter, started feeling there was something weird in the Republican Party, and I just don't know that I belong. I'm politically homeless. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a wonderful sentiment. I want you to be politically homeless. I understand how hard it is, especially if, like me, you grew up not just in the Democratic Party, but not actually really thinking that there was any alternative to the Democratic Party. Because being politically homeless uh, and admitting it is the moment in which you stop thinking about these structures in these old and unhelpful terms. Oh, they are the left. And I can't say this again, really, they're the left because they support companies like Google that quash free speech and that kowtow to the Chinese government. Like, that's the left for you right now these days? That's not the left at all, nor is it particularly on the right uh, to have uh, certain people, especially now in the Democratic Party, who uh, care about concerns of real working Americans in ways uh, that just you know a decade or two ago would have been considered populist and have much more in common with what the left traditionally stood for than anything we understand the traditional conservative Republican Party to mean. These terms are so stupid to me. Uh, what's important is, is who's in your camp and what we believe and what we could do together to rebuild this. And, and while I think the chaos that we're experiencing is so weird and scary, I could not be more widely optimistic for the future of this country and the long term because there are so many of us who are coming and saying exactly what he said, like, ah, I used to be a Democrat my entire life, but I look at these nut jobs at the Democratic Party and the things that they're saying, and there's no way I could support this. Or people are saying like, hey man, I used to be a Republican my entire life, but I just don't feel comfortable in the party as it is today. That's the moment that they realize that it's not about that label that it's not about that kind of construct, rather that it's about much bigger things. Uh, it's about this nation and the way it's always had. Uh, look, I'm a, I'm a religious guy. I, I believe uh, in, in the divine election of this nation. I believe this is a very, very special country. And I believe that the way America reasserts its greatness every uh, 50 or 60 years is by living up uh, to its covenantal promise and remembering that it's playing a really big part in this world, that it's committed to something that's much greater than itself. And that's the moment where it goes ahead and does something incredible, be it the War of Independence, be it the Civil War. That's the moment where it stands up for human liberty. And, and it does so not because a party said something, not because a news media organization reported something, but because people band together and decide to work together for some greater cause. And I see that happening now. I see an organization of people coming together all of a sudden and saying to each other, hi, I never thought that you and I had much in common, but turns out we both believe in these fundamental American virtues. Let's go ahead and rebuild an institution because our universities have been corrupted. Let's go ahead and build another news media outlet because our newspapers have been corrupted. Let's go ahead and build another way of doing business because our big business have been corrupted. That fills me with so much hope and so much joy. You know, I can't help but think the, the sort of the, the events that you mentioned uh, in American history that I guess a lot of people died in them. Mm -hmm. Is that the sort of thing you're... God, God help us. Um, I am not given <laughs> to uh, 
apocalyptic visions by nature. Thank God that is, that is one of the very few vices uh, to which I do not succumb. There are many more uh, which I don't excel at resisting. I think that there are a lot of ways uh, that we could avoid a grim, steely uh, confrontation. Uh, and I think that the way you do it uh, is by understanding very early uh, what's really going on. And I think that what you're seeing right now, precisely what you've just described, uh, is, is an extremely hopeful sign. Uh, when people look around and say, I don't want to fight you. We're not enemies. I, I don't want to live life uh, with checklists of, oh, I'm only allowed to be your friend if you see the world in precisely the same way. Oh, I only want to belong to this group of people if they vow never to say X and Y and Z. If you reject that, if you reject this totalitarian, authoritarian, stupid, binary way of looking at the world, then you're not here to fight. You're not here to wreck. You're here to build. And here's the thing. Everything has already been destroyed. The violence you describe, Jan, it has already happened. The fact that you can't go to an American college class these days and get a real education that takes something as simple as human biology into account, the devastation has already happened. The fact that you can't open a major American newspaper and get an actual truthful factual account of the world around you, to do that you would have to go to the Epoch Times or other alternative media sources. The destruction has already happened. We now live in Dresden and the year is 1945. Everything has been bombed out. We do not have functioning institutions anymore. Institutions of government, institutions of intellectual uh, creation, art, look at you know, Hollywood and, and the drivel it produces. We have none of that. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. We need everything rebuilt anew. There is huge potential for this rebuilding. And these are the most exciting people that I'm seeing right now. And those are the people that I'm seeing who actually succeed, not just financially, although that's certainly a big part of it, but also emotionally succeed in rebuilding something, in creating something, in making something. You know, Facebook had this um, motto when the company started, move fast and break, the yeah. S word. Um, I think we should reconsider that slogan. Move slowly and build stuff. Mm -hmm. instead of breaking. And that's what the successful people are doing and they're working together and they're building new media outlets and they're building new forms of educating their children and they're building new ways of communal living. They're building new ways of thinking about currency. Look at all the Bitcoin revolution and the stuff that it is doing. It is profoundly exciting. None of that stuff is happening because big corporations or big government willed it to be. It's happening because Americans are doing what Americans have always done, which is be resolute, creative, resilient, and community-minded. And look at us. We're building amazing things. You know, this is something I've been thinking about for, for many months. You know, recently there was uh, uh, Dr. Robert Malone, mm -hmm. who I've had on the show a number of times, uh, was on with Joe Rogan, and he mentioned... Uh, mass formation psychosis. Mm -hmm. Of course, you're aware. I think mm -hmm. hopefully, sounds like everybody's aware of mass formation psychosis all of a sudden, which is just incredible. Well, it feels to me like some portion, it might not be a lot, but there's some portion of the population almost feels hypnotized. I, I completely agree. It's terrifying, isn't it, to see this? Any thoughts about how that happens? Oh, yeah. Um, I think it's kind of grimmer uh, and simpler than, than, than we would think. Um, it begins with what you believe, sadly. Um, if you are, and look, I'm, I'm, I'm really prejudiced here because as I mentioned, I'm a person of faith and so my worldview is colored very strongly by my faith. If your story began thousands of years ago, and will end at no time in the near future. And if your commitment is not just to yourself, but to your children and to their children and to your community and to your fellow believers and above all to the Almighty, um, your perspective on life is very, very different. If you start every morning saying thank you for all of this, for giving me one more shot at getting it right or failing better, uh, that's one thing. 
Now imagine you didn't. Imagine you woke up in the morning and literally believed in nothing. Imagine that like an alarmingly increasing number of young Americans, you had no family, you had no children, and you weren't dating. Imagine you live alone uh, and that most of the news that you receive comes from these infernal devices. And imagine that these devices are now governed by a group of corporations that actually realized a long time ago, and I'm not saying anything um, that hasn't been empirically proven or that is even very controversial, but it has been proven that these corporations thrive on keeping their customers, their consumers, their users, right? We talk about users when it comes to Facebook and heroin, and, and the two things are very, very similar. Uh, at, at, in a state, keeping their users in a state of, of increased perpetual alarm. Um, imagine that's your uh, prevalent technology, that's your socio-economic uh, structure. Now imagine that on top of this, you now have massive student debt, and also no job because the whole promise that you would go to college and then get a good job and career, that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, imagine you saw all around you tremendous misery. Imagine that the people entrusted with keeping you safe, well-fed, free from disease or want, uh, were failing their jobs miserably and then blaming all kinds of other uh, ephemeral structures. That is a recipe for disaster. That is a recipe in which you seek some kind of catch-all relief. Uh, you seek the devil, right? Who can I blame? Oh, blame Trump. Oh, blame the Republicans. Oh, blame Russia. Blame this, blame that, blame the other. Um, it's very easy to understand how so many people have been entranced by this for so long because the alternative is much harder. Uh, I'll, I'll finish with, with one short example that I think illustrates this point very, very well. Uh, in, in Judaism, you are propelled to pray in what is known as a minion or a quorum. A minion is 10 people. Why 10? Because one is too few and a hundred is too many. 10 is the perfect number. You go to synagogue every day and out of these 10 people, there are going to be three you can't stand. But you don't have a choice. They're there. They're part of your community. You have to see them, you have to feel them, you have to interact with them. And when you do, the, the, the mass psychosis kind of, you know, it diminishes because, because you, you get herd immunity <laughs> to stupidity, right? Because you're actually interacting with other humans, which is very difficult. It's much easier to sit at home and inject yourself with this paralysis, with this trance-inducing uh, storyline that tells you that the author of your misfortune is some bad guy in Washington or Mar-a-Lago or wherever you have it. Uh, and, and it has enticed so many people. And I am happy to report that in my very unscientific, uh, completely non-medical uh, opinion and experience, it is very much a reversible condition. It does dissipate, it does fade away at the point when which you wake up and say, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm sorry, what, what, what has the last five years been about and what have you been doing and what's going on here? Uh, and when you do, you figure out that there are a lot of people waking up next to you who feel the same way. No, I mean, it's, it's so interesting. Um, I, I keep thinking about this ideology, wokeism, let's call it. You know, there's different names. John McWhorter calls it the elect calls the people that subscribe to it the elect. Um, it, it's pro profoundly reductionistic in the way that you have been kind of describing. It kind of groups people Correct. by... And it is a religious faith, 100%. Okay, tell me. I mean, look at everything about it. The iconography, the murals, the taking of the knee, the washing of the feet, all the trappings uh, of, of a religious order are there except for the stuff that actual religions uh, that have been around for a minute or two worked out like, um, like absolution, like forgiveness, like compassion, like kindness. These are things that have taken uh, you know, Christianity, Islam, religion, other, uh, Judaism, other religions, you know, a, f a few hundred years to kind of really settle into. Uh, and, and this new uh, religious order uh, is a bad religion uh, because it doesn't have 
a vehicle for that. There is no forgiveness. There is no way for you to redeem yourself if by its own definitions you have sinned. It is, as you said, very reductionist. It is very cruel. It is uh, very unforgiving, uh, which is why I think ultimately it will fade. It's just not good at what it does. It doesn't make anyone happy. It doesn't bring justice. It sows discord. It sows disruption. It sows mistrust. Uh, it sows violence. And nothing that does that uh, survives for a very long time. You may have a decade. You may have two. We have seen you know, the Soviet Union live for, for a nice long century, but not beyond. Wow, so many vantage points here. I want to go into the, I guess, the foreign policy realm a little bit here. The thing that concerns me the most is that America is not just besieged by itself, but also by a very aggressive, powerful nation, the Chinese Communist Party, mm -hmm. runs, right? Um, and so the question is, can America survive its own tribulation with it being, I guess, exasperated and by some uh, regime that seeks to subvert it? I know you may not have the answer for this, but I'm just telling you what concerns me. I, I am going to, to once again, with your permission, lean on tradition um, because it gives a good answer. Um, the other day, we read in the Talmud, the sacred Jewish codex of laws, ideas, and traditions, a very interesting passage. It basically mentions the ages of a host of the, vi of the villains, the, the, the big bad guys of the Bible, right? Haman and, and these, you know, Pharaoh, these, these really terrible people who try to eliminate and eradicate the Jewish people. And one of the rabbis asked, why are we talking about them? This is our holy book. Why are we mentioning the people who sought to destroy our way of life in our holy book? Shouldn't we just completely eradicate their memory? And his fellow rabbis say, no. There is tremendous value in having a Voldemort if you're trying to become Harry Potter. There is tremendous value if you're Luke Skywalker in having a Darth Vader somewhere in there telling you, you know what's going to happen if you fail? This is what's going to happen. You know what happened if America fails? That's what's going to happen if America fails. It's not a hypothetical. It's not a, an invitation to like, well, you know, you could do something or not do something. It's completely fine. It's a reminder that there is a cost to be paid. It's a reminder that we do not uh, live in a bubble, that nature, of course, abhors a vacuum. If we don't live up to our potential, well, then it's very clear what the world is going to look like. It is now purely a choice, and it's our choice to make. I think it's tremendously clarifying. Uh, and I'm very grateful uh, that, that we have this sort of clarity of vision. So, you know, clearly, you know, you're from Israel. Um, you've done a lot of thinking, as I know, about the Israeli-American relationship, about, you know, the nature of Israel in itself. And this is actually a question that comes up quite often, um, even in conversations that I have. You know, the question of Zionism and anti-Semitism. I've had people tell me that anti-Zionism is a form of anti-Semitism, okay? And I've had people tell me that's propaganda. And, you know, these are people that, that I, I'm happy to have conversations with, right? But why don't you clarify this for me? I think I could do this rather easily. Um, the, the test here is simple. Um, do you treat Jews? as you would treat any other group of humans on God's green earth? If the answer is yes, uh, and you then say, well, I believe in uh, people's right to natural self-determination, uh, especially in their indigenous homeland, well then congratulations, you're a Zionist, because that's all the term means. It's the belief that Jews should have the right um, to govern their own affairs, in their ancestral homeland uh, to which everything from history to archaeology to theology uh, traces back our, our past and heritage. 
uh, if for whatever reason uh, you extend the same exact right to every other nation on the planet, but not to Jews, well then we have a word for it. Uh, it's a very old word, uh, and it means a person who hates Jews. Uh, it's really not very complicated. Now, you could be deeply opposed to 101 policies the Israeli government has. Uh, Lord knows I have throughout my entire life mostly found myself in opposition to most policies the Israeli government uh, chose to, to enact, uh, and that's completely fine. But if you take uh, uh, steps, if you make an effort to identify yourself as anti-Zionist, which again means anti the right of Jews specifically to uh, embody their own ancestral homeland, then I have a really big problem with your worldview. You could, if you wanted, say, hey, you know what, I don't believe in nation states. I don't believe any person should have the right to, to their own, to self-governance uh, in, in their own uh, you know, ancestral homeland. If that's the case, and you also, as a result, don't believe Jews have that right, we're 100% fine. But if you believe any other uh, persecuted minority uh, here on this planet has this right and should be taken seriously and in fact aided, except for the Jews, well buddy, I'm sorry, but that's exactly the attitude that Zionism was created to fight. So, you know, as, as I was kind of reading some of your work as, you know, in preparation for this interview, I also came across a piece uh, which I thought was pretty fascinating because, of course, I'm Polish. Um, and so I've been very interested in Pol Poland-Israeli um, relations. My, you know, my whole, both sides of my family are from, are from Poland. And so you, this is what you wrote. Um, the headline is, Why Poland is Right to End Holocaust Property Claims. Now, wow, that's a contentious issue. And wow, that's an interesting position to take. Fast, so tell me. Well, I, um, can we read actually the, the part? This the, is the next part? There's a name for people who imagine that the right to reclaim your great-grandmother's house should extend forever, Palestinians. Correct. Uh, here's the genius uh, of the Zionist project. Uh, we uh, suffered uh, at, at the hands of a whole host uh, of regimes throughout history. Uh, we have yearned for the right to return to our homeland and govern our own affairs. And when uh, bought by much suffering and much bloodshed, that right uh, became a reality when the State of Israel was established in 1948. That is the moment in which our, uh, the project of our rebuilding uh, began in earnest, again, in our own ancestral homeland. To sit and say uh, that in perpetuity, we should now have claims to property that we were forced to abandon uh, 50, 60 years ago. Uh, to say that that claim extends indefinitely, to say that the host uh, countries have no right uh, to govern their own affairs and make some kind of sensible rule that at some point, well, maybe we should adjust uh, these claims, uh, struck me as, as just completely wrong and it struck me also as as you know too perilously close to what I see the Palestinians doing which is settle in different nations including the United States um, build successful lives here uh, and continue to claim that there are somehow refugees uh, the Jews who survived the Holocaust and moved to the state of Israel they're not refugees they're home do they deserve some kind of compensation sure should that compensation be negotiated by the country uh, from which they fled? Yes. Should it have some kind of sensible limitation? Absolutely. To say otherwise to me is just propaganda. And sadly, uh, see this is a moment in which I will happily criticize the Israeli government. I think uh, the Israeli government, the current Israeli government's uh, view of uh, Poland as uh, unreasonable in this act, uh, or even somehow inherently anti-Semitic, uh, I think is deeply misguided and I hope to see it rectified one day soon. Well, so let's, let's kind of jump back to the main topic at hand. I just couldn't help myself. You know, you, we, you share, we share a lot of common interests, <laughs> let's just say. I guess the question is, um, to, to different groups of people, okay? The first group of people is the people that are maybe watching this 
maybe thinking to themselves, I can't talk about this, I risk alienating my, the love of my life, I risk alienating, I risk you know, destroying my family. I risk, to those people, in this moment, it's a difficult moment, what, what, is, what is your advice? What ah, should people like such, this do? Such a simple, pure advice that comes to us uh, from perhaps well, the greatest of all modern uh, dissidents, uh, the author of the Gulag Archipelago, live not by lies. Live not by lies. It's also the title of a great book by uh, my, my friend, the great Rod Dreher, that reminds us that if you are in an arrangement in which you are forced to lie, simply to be accepted, in which you do not feel uh, like you could have meaningful emotional conversations uh, with your loved ones, there is no growth there. There is no light there. There is no hope there, and you should leave. This is not to say that the price of leaving will not be high. It is quite possible that as a result, you will no longer have to, uh, you will no longer be able to continue working at, at, at your place of employment. That is a very difficult conundrum for most people to resolve. It is quite possible, as you said, that as a result you would alienate a loved one or a family member. However, I think the thing to remind ourselves of is that there is no alternative. Because once you start lying to yourself, once you start saying, well, I accept the fact that uh, I now must pretend uh, like I could only say this even though I know this to be completely untrue because otherwise I just can't go to this dinner party or can't keep this job or can't you know, be invited to Thanksgiving anymore, then something very profound and very human has already died inside of you. You've already paid a price and the price is much, much, much higher than anyone you could pay Regardless, sure, dissidents suffer greatly, which is why we see so few of them. But they are free. And their freedom is priceless. And the freedom to be able to speak the truth simply uh, is great. And here's the reward for that freedom. Here's the reward for that sacrifice. The connections that you make, they're very real. I told you just a minute ago about the relationships uh, that I had lost. Uh, and I could tell you a little bit more about professional opportunities that all of a sudden closed up to me. I was no longer able uh, to continue teaching at New York University once I was no longer willing uh, to express views and ideas that I knew to be completely nonsensical and offensive. Uh, so I had lost quite a bit. But here's what I gained. I gained the friendship and the trust and love of a group of human beings that I would never have otherwise thought even existed. In fact, some of whom, if I met, had I met, you know, three, four, five, six years prior, I would have mocked as being somehow rubes or racist or, you know, politically incorrect in some way that made me feel queasy. But now that I just came to them with humility, <laughs> with an open heart, with understanding that I too can make mistakes, I built some of the most beautiful friendships of my life. And I could give you one example. Um, when I was in Colombia, I was a graduate student. And all of a sudden, a bunch of undergrads came and started saying, hey, you know, uh, if you are a proud Zionist religious Jew here in this school, um, you get the short end of the stick. You get treated poorly. You get kind of harassed by professors. And I thought to myself, that's not true. The great Columbia University would never allow for that to happen. There is freedom of expression here. There's freedom of thought here. Here you could say whatever you believe in with impunity. And so I started a fight with these fellow Jews. I said, no, no, you're completely wrong. In fact, you, you strike me as a little bit, I don't know, maybe fascist, maybe too right wing, maybe too crazy. And one of them in particular was very vocal. Uh, and so we really got into it publicly, uh, in print and, and in some live events. And a few years later, as good fortune would have it, um, the same young woman walks into uh, the office of Tablet Magazine, where I work, uh, because she is uh, now our, our new, a new editor at this publication. And her name is Barry Weiss. And I said, Barry, um, we were off to a rough start, but I hope we could be friends. And then two things happened, three actually. The first is uh, that I 
got to know Barry as a person uh, and absolutely fell in love with her and realized that she was amazing, uh, even though at this point we disagreed. The second is that I started seeing that Barry was actually right about pretty much everything and that I was actually completely wrong. And the third is that I had the really good fortune of being able to come to her and say, I'm so sorry. I was so stupid. And thank you for still sticking with me, even though you know, it took us a while to air it out. And our friendship remains very deep to this very day. Uh, and it gives me tremendous hope because that's what you get when you live not by lies. You get real relationships with amazing people you never would have thought would be your friends, but they're predicated on realness. They're now the kind of relationship where you could pick up the phone and be like, let me tell you something. And you could actually speak your heart and your mind. There's nothing like it, Jan. There's nothing like it. But there are a lot of people in this day and age, by its very illiberal nature, for lack of a better term, that have lost a bit of that, maybe call it moral high ground, a little, a little bit of that selves because they chose the other, the other way. Mm -hmm. What about them? Yeah. Well, here's the, best, uh, here's the best I could do. We all make difficult choices. All of our choices are, are, are predicated on calculations that only we could know. Um, it is very important to me having, um, having experienced this term and having seen how wrong I was about so many things, to approach people with deep humility uh, and understand that I'm not there to judge their circumstances or their decisions or, or their own uh, you know, intricate uh, emotional calculations. What I can do is offer uh, three pieces of advice. The first uh, is cribbed from, from my friend, the writer Walter Kern, uh, who was gracious enough to have a public conversation with me the other day, uh, and said that the first piece of advice he would give is wean yourself off your addiction to prestige. Stop thinking like, oh, I need to write for the New York Times because that's the prestigious publication. Oh, I need to go to Harvard because that's the prestigious school. I enough with that. That is no longer where the great good lies, if it ever did lie there to begin with. The second is um, understand that there are so many people around you who want to be open to you. Yes, you might have uh, made a decision to be, you know, a little bit subservient or a little bit you know, bow your head a little bit in order to keep your job or keep your family arrangement or keep whatever it is that you have going on. But understand that there are so many other people around you who, who feel differently and still want to connect with you. And that leads me to my third and I think most important kind of prescription, which is no matter what you chose, no matter how you see the world, please, please, please be focused on building. If you spend your entire day, it doesn't matter uh, that, that you, you know, maybe sit at the dinner party and nod your head when people say things that you feel are just patently idiotic. Um, if you choose to spend your entire day sort of fearful, going on Twitter, looking at the news, doing nothing, feeling anxious, well, Anne, you're not really helping. Uh, if you choose to build something instead, uh, then you're going in a really different direction. And, and here's the thing about building. Um, the enormity of the moment is such that people feel like, oh, I'm so helpless because unless I fix the entirety of our broken political system, then I'm meaningless. Forget that. Your job is not to fix America. <laughs> Your job is not to fix healthcare or politics or national security or any of that. Your job is to fix the thing that is right in your backyard that you're really into uh, and you think you could do better. Maybe it's, you know, some kind of um, uh, food bank that, that you could build because you really care about this issue. Maybe it's, uh, you know, helping a couple of friends who are homeschooling because you are thinking about doing this too and you want to start a group. Those kind of small grassroots, positive, uh, do-it-yourself type of enterprises are more are what I'm seeing more and more and more and more and more of and a lot of people who are taking part of them are people who otherwise are still you know 
keeping a little bit of a lower profile. They're not people who are looking for big blowouts or big confrontations, but they are people who are smart enough to understand that where the emotional intelligence and energy ought to be directed to is towards building something that is viable and, and, and generative and good. If it makes you feel good, if it makes you feel like you've created something that is sustainable and nurturing in your community, uh, then you're already completely on the right path, even if you sit there at that dinner party and nod your head to the nonsense. Well, Liel Leibovitz, such a pleasure to have you on. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you for everything that you do. Mm -hmm.